I was really lucky to get to talk to author and writer Rebecca Wolf about her new book, All of This, A Memoir of Death and Desire. Rebecca does such a beautiful job of talking about the truth of what it's like to have a complicated death. She and her husband were in a very difficult part of their relationship when her husband got a terminal diagnosis. She talks about what it's like to come out the other side, a single woman ready to date and live life. And we also talk about my favorite show, Heartstopper. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Really glad you're here. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to go over onto Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Thanks so much. You are a gorgeous writer, which I'm sure people have said to you before, but literally, I want you to know, so I, th- I read the last 10 pages two seconds ago. I got to the last, thank you, Hal, for this book. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like that was my, that, that was my response to your last page. So I've, I have dog-eared it and bookmarked it and underlined it because the writing is really beautiful, but I would love for you to start and just sort of like give my listeners, the question I always ask people is like, how do you come into the world of grief and loss? I mean, my experience with grief, every time I've had a situation where I've lost somebody, whether it be death or anything, I think in the past, um, my mechanism for dealing is taking care of everybody else. Mm So, um, when I had a friend die, my worry was his parents. When I had another friend die, my worry was his friends, his community, the people who couldn't handle, I've always gone into mother mode. Yeah. Whenever I lose somebody, even if it's my best friend, even if it's my husband, right. That's my, it's, it's like fight, flight, freeze. Mine is (laughs) hold everybody like take care of everybody whatever that I need like an f word for that um feel for everyone else so (laughs) yeah yeah fix that's right but I don't but see my thing is never fixing like that I'm never about like how do I make you feel better I'm always about how do I sit with you and love on you and give you what you need right now. I'm, I don't believe in fixing, um, which I, I know I wrote about a little bit, but that's been like my biggest beat in this, like having conversations, especially with parents who are dealing with grief of a spouse of a, of a kid's parent is that you can't fix any, you can't fix it. And you can't tell your children that it's going to be okay. Like all the, all of this language that we were given, like lies. Yeah. Lies. Right. Lies. Yeah. But I think for me, and this is something that I'm still working on and I'm still working out is that how do I allow myself to have feelings that aren't, it's like, I I value myself based on how I'm taking care of the people around me. Um, so I, I really didn't give myself even in the past with losing friends, losing loved ones. I didn't really allow myself the space to grieve them. I was making sure I was like making a mixtape for the funeral that was going to be correct. Or do you know what I'm saying? Like I was trying to make sure that everything was taken care of and everyone felt okay. And that, you know, I, I went shopping for my friends, what he was going to wear in his casket with his parent, like making sure how can I help you? Right. Like how can I be of service? Um, and like, just completely 
ignoring or at least not allowing myself to have the feelings that I clearly needed to feel. So I think a lot of my grief comes way later, right? I, I, as soon as everyone else is okay, this is what happened with my kids. Mm-hmm. As soon as they were okay, I was like, okay, now I can break down. And this is still how I am. When there's like an, a traumatic, we just had an issue. My daughter, we thought she died because she fell asleep she fell asleep in the bathtub with the door locked. And when I was knocking on the door, she didn't answer. When I was pounding on the door, she didn't answer. I was screaming, pounding with my other kids, pounding, screaming her name. She didn't answer. So I kicked down the door and she still didn't answer. And she still didn't move. And she's lying in the bathtub with her eyes closed and her ears underwater. And I'm shaking her in the bath and she sits up and she's like, what, what, what? And we we were all hysterical at that point thinking she was dead and she was just asleep. Now my, there's no, like, there's, there's a door. There's no bathroom door. Yeah. That's the legacy of that kind of thing. No bathroom door. Listen, everything that you're saying right now makes perfect sense to me. And I feel like is one of the legacies of traumatic loss or loss in general is that you don't have a spectrum of reasonable when you get afraid around someone's mortality. Like, you know, there are those of us like me, where if, if you're 10 minutes late to meet me for lunch, I am writing your eulogy in my head. And so when you show up, I might cry. And I know that's a trauma response for some people. This does not seem like an overreaction. This, well, this, this, was not, this was not an overreaction, but what happened was I couldn't allow myself to have the feeling because my concern, all my kids were, all of them were, they were a mess. I had one that was hysterically crying, one that was angry and one that was pacing in circles, just talking to herself. And they were all three having this reaction, which, and I went straight back to the place when I found out their dad was dying, which is- I need to make sure that they're all okay before I can even like metabolize what has happened. So I literally spent the entire night going from room to room, making sure they're okay. Just talking to them about it. How are you feeling? What I, cause I knew that it was, they had PTSD from, you know, their dad it was the first time they had, you know, they thought they lost their sister. Um, basically spent all this time with them. And then they went, I, I did not cry did not have an emotional response past that initial when I thought, you know, when I was shaking her, I was like very calm. And they all went off to school and I had a full on like panic attack breakdown, yeah, but I did. had to wait until they were okay yeah. to allow myself to like, whew, do you know what yeah. I mean? I do. Yeah. I do. I mean, I think there's so much wisdom in the way in which our systems respond to things. Mm -hmm. And I also think sometimes they can totally screw us over. (laughs) Lots of times people will come into my office and say, I never grieved my mom. It's been 10 years and they'll have lots of symptoms and lots of things to describe. And what's interesting is it's never like totally emotionally or otherwise illogical. There was, there were other people's needs that need to get met. There were you know, maybe emotional fragility of the person, like they wouldn't have been able to do it. But what I'm hearing in the story that you're describing is that hold that we do as moms, which is I'm going to hold space for you. And I think one of the reasons that I related so much to the book, I mean, the book to me, and I want you to get deep into it, but when my mother died, I knew she died because I felt it inside my body. And my listeners know this story that I was driving about an hour away from her house. And I had this sensation of water breaking inside 
and I wasn't pregnant. Um, and I had a clear thought and the clear thought was she died. And I called my husband to say he was at the house. I need you to go in and see her. I think she died. And then he called me, you know, 12 minutes later and was like, I need you to pull the car over. He wouldn't tell me what I had already told him until I was like safe. I had four kids in the car. So when I pulled over and he told me, and then I subsequently called my siblings and told them there was this moment, right? Like I am her daughter, but there's four kids under the age of 12 in the car. I had this moment that, that I think of as sort of the still point of trauma and the still point probably of where the old life broke and the new life built, which is I, I decided not to be the daughter in that moment. I went and was like, I need to get these kids. Yeah. You're the mother. Yeah. Yeah. And then once I did it, I couldn't stop doing it. Yeah. And then when there was nothing else to mother. And so what actually happened for me was, and this is what I mean by it can screw you over. It was a very high functioning process to do all the things for all the funeral and all that. But when there was really nothing left to do, I couldn't anchor myself. Yeah. I couldn't. And then I couldn't mother. I couldn't do anything. Yeah. I, I was useless. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Like you're, and that's the thing too. It's like, where I was always like, everyone was, was like, you know, and cause I've been like this even before I've been a mother, I've been over mothering since forever. forever. And this way before I even had kids, this like taking care of everyone, making sh- sure that everyone else is okay before I have a, a feeling or, or yeah. reaction. It, for me, like it, it comes from a place of feeling of control, right. Of feeling like I'm in control. Okay. I can control this. I can put all of my effort into making everyone else feel seen and heard and, and loved. And then I, I always have a moment where I was like, why isn't anyone taking care of me? But I'm right. not, I haven't allowed them to, I haven't even, I haven't asked for help. I haven't let the people who have, you know, I, you know, I've, I've been in relationships and ended them because they were trying to help me and take care of me. Like I can't. So I've created, it's like a self-fulfilling thing that I'm, you know, working through now, still yeah. work, probably working through forever where I don't know what to do when people reach out to me or try to take care of me. And when Hal was dying and like my entire community rallied around me and held me, I didn't know what to do with that energy. It was like, I, it's, it's almost like it's the one part that I sort of blocked out. It was almost like I had a trauma response to being taken care of. I totally get that. Overwhelming. I couldn't tell you who was in my house. People just showed up and moved furniture, brought food, filled my refrigerator brought me a new refrigerator when there wasn't enough room in this one. I had a meal train going for a year to the point where I was like, thank you so much. But like, I don't like, thank you. We can't eat this much food. It was so overwhelming and people were so incredible. And I, I couldn't, it was like, I didn't know what to do with it. And, um, I, I feel I like every time I think about it, I feel terribly guilty that I didn't like thank people or like, I don't, I still don't know who did what, you know what I mean? Like, but well, it's so first I want to, I want to ask you to just give a quick summary of the story. I, you know, you don't have to give giant spoilers or anything, but, but the part that you're describing right now, the nugget underneath it is that it's so disorienting. You lose parts of how you anchor yourself to the world Yeah. when you are, yes, obviously when someone who is a significant part of your life and who you love dies, 
but also in the process of losing them. And so this, when you're describing all these people coming into your house, I can feel it in my body, this like intense, anxious self-consciousness that that would cause me because I have a supervision group. And one of them wisely came years ago and was like, listen, if, if any of us is ever hit by a truck, we have to have a plan for how we're going to show up for each other's clients. We need to have a mechanism to alert them. And I, I'm not kidding, Rebecca, in the moment, I can't get hit by a truck. So don't worry about it. But I, in the moment, it never occurred to me that we were putting together a process that I was going to need. I was like, that's right. I will be wonderful for you when you need me here. And I am the person that we use that system for. Like when I got sick and I, my PTSD was really, and I remember watching them being like, don't worry, we know what to do. And I was like, right. I know. I remember I was at that meeting. I just didn't think it was going to be me because I'm not that person. I'm the person who likes to hold space for other people, but the body and the mind do have a max level where they tap out and where things break and our old system doesn't work anymore. And I think maybe at least what I heard in yours was that shit needed to break in order for you to be. So can you, can you just give a quick summary of the story of all of this yeah. so that folks and, and tell us when it comes out, because I got, I got a pre reader sure. Yeah. So it comes out August 16th. Um, which is sort, which now feels soon. It's been, it's been a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I finished, you know, I finished the second draft or the, you know, the final, the, well, I've been doing edits, but I finished the main draft. It's been almost two years. So we almost two years when it comes out. So I was married. Um, I was married for 13 and a half years when my husband was diagnosed suddenly with terminal stage four pancreatic cancer in the ER, he had a stomach, it went to the hospital. Our marriage, we, we were essentially done. Our marriage was done. I had told him a few weeks before his diagnosis that I wanted a divorce and that I didn't love him anymore. We had almost split up. I mean, for our entire marriage, we were almost splitting up and then getting yeah. up and then everything was okay. And then we'd have a good period. And then, but the last, I would say six years of our marriage were bad. Yeah. Um, pretty much like after the twins were born, my twins were born in 2011. It was bad. Okay. Um, from their birth, from their birth till his death. Um, and I was really, you know, desperate to get out of the marriage pretty soon after they were born, like trying to figure out an exit plan and then coming back and forth and then being like, well, I guess I could stay with him a little longer and let's wait until we're more financially stable. Like there were all these things, Yeah. you know, I like had little plans and then I, anyway, anyone who's been in a difficult marriage knows what I'm talking about. Right. You yeah. So, but I'd finally hit my breaking point and I had reached out to a friend and I was like, if I don't get out of this marriage, like I'm going to kill myself or run away. Like something It got to the point where it was like, I couldn't even be in the same room with him, let alone house. It was awful. We weren't speaking. Um, we weren't speaking at all when he got sick. So he basically had a stomach ache and I wouldn't take him to the hospital because I hated him. And I was like, you have a stomach ache, like go take an Uber. Like it was that bad. Um, and he called me from the ER a few hours later and was like, I'm dying. Um, so as you can imagine, it was very complicated, um, because I had wanted him to die. Right. Like I had not said that, but I was so miserable that I had, fantasized about this happening. 
if only something could happen to him, if only something could happen to me, if only something could happen, period. Some way out. Some way out. Um, so, you know, my first re- my first feeling obviously was like, was, I mean, there were so many different feelings that I felt, but essentially, you know, I spent the next four months taking care of him, trying to be the wife that I felt like he needed at the end you know, we were able to salvage, you know, what love we had left in those last few months. I feel like actually the best I ever was as his wife was during the months he was dying, because that's what I do. I take care of you. Like, yeah. Sorry. Oh, don't apologize. But it's like, like I can rally, right? I can rally if you're sick or you're sad, I can take care of you. And I was able to do that, but I couldn't, you know, it was, it was really, it was really, um, you know, like in retrospect, it's a wild feeling to feel like you're at your best only when people are at their worst, right? It's like, well, what, that is, that's, that's, a, I don't want that. Like, I don't want to only be able to be, you know, <laughs> I'm a great mom when the kids are having issues, right? I'm a great partner when people are dying. Like it's, it's like, it's, it's sort of a, a, a bit of a, an emotional mind fuck to like realize that about yourself. And this goes beyond me and like who I am, but our, our marriage was, you know, I mean, we got married. I got unexpectedly pregnant at 23. We eloped to Vegas. We are total strangers. We are all wrong for each other. We could not be more different. You know, I'm like the, this sort of (laughs) like all like loose, whatever, free spirit kind of like go with the flow. And he was, you know, very, um, just angry. And (laughs) we were like, just very different from the beginning. It was bad. It was bad. Um, and I think my experience and like what, you know, whatever, what I wrote about in my book was essentially the complicated feelings that came through finding out that somebody that I wanted to lose was, losing me or losing himself was losing, I guess, period. Um, the guilt in that and the relief and the sadness and the anger, this is a conversation I was actually just having with somebody, um, like this sort of, um, like the, the grief response that like happens four years later, because I recently went through breakup and it was the first time anyone had left me, right? Like this is my first breakup where I got, dumped like so hard. And I think my response to it, there was a lot of response where it went back to hell dying, where it was like, wait, I wanted to leave you. And now you're dying. Like I finally got the balls. I finally got the nerve to leave you. And then you, you leave me first. <laughs> wait you a minute. Kidding? What? Like, that- I, like, I have no autonomy in this. Like, I, so now I'm a widow, but and I don't, but I'm not a widow because I was trying to get divorced first. It's really a divorcee more so, than a right. widow. So, that emboldened thing that happens with, you know, where divorcees find themselves yes. in a much more vibrant stage of life because this is what they need. That is more what you write about after Hal dies. And that was my feeling, but I was a widow. So it was like, I couldn't talk about it. I had to sort of, 
I felt like I had to, you know, sort of be performative in my grief because people were expecting me to, you know, say certain things, do certain things. I was dating really fast after he died and hit it. Like, yeah, you know, even my close friends didn't know. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I remember, and I didn't write about this in my book or I, this wasn't an early draft. Yeah. That's always the way. (laughs) My original draft was twice as long as the one yeah. that you read. Oh, I believe, I believe this. Under, I, now when I talk about the book, I'm like, I don't know if it's in it or not. I, I wrote it. I don't remember if it's in there. Yeah. yeah. But there was a moment where I was at my friend's birthday party and it was in January. So hell had been dead for October, November, December, less than three months. Yeah. And I was going straight from the dinner to go fuck someone for lack of a better term. Right. Yep. And I didn't. Nobody knew that this was happening. Nobody knew that this, I had this thing with this person. Um, And I was sitting next to a woman who was going through a divorce and she was talking about how she's just started dating. And I told her, I said, let me just tell you that after this dinner, I'm going to go get fucked. Like, like full on told her. And her response was, oh my God. Yeah. Like good for you. And I was like, wait, really good for me. Really, really, really. And then everyone at the table was kind of like overhearing. They're like, wait, what's going on? Where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go have sex after dinner. Like I have, I'm going over to this person's house. He lives around the corner and everybody at the table was like, good for you, blah, blah, blah. And when I got up from the table to leave, they all stood up and clapped. Shut up. And I literally burst into tears. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and I you. was like, oh, these people like, this these are my people. Like they love me. Why am I? I was so, I was afraid of being judged even by the people that I loved, which made me realize that like, this shit is so stigmatized that I didn't even trust the people that I trusted to see me or to, to have empathy for me or to be happy for me. Like I assume that everyone just wanted me to be sad and alone and all these things that you're expected to be when you're a widow, like newly widowed. And the fact that they were not only supportive, but like, like celebrate it. I was walking out the door. It was a pivotal life moment. And honestly, I feel like my job now and with this book, and I just launched a column today about, I um, saw that I was going to, yeah. And I feel like that is what I wanted. I want to be a woman at the table who stands up and cheers when you're leaving to go get fucked, whether your husband just died, whether you're, you know, what, what just got out of a divorce whether you're in a miserable situation and you need to get out of it. Like I want to be there to unapologetically shamelessly stand with whatever woman needs to get up from the table and go to where she needs to go. So that's basically what I've spent the last few years doing for people or trying to do or wanting to, that's been my goal because that I needed that so desperately. That was such a moment for me to feel not only seen, we normalize this very specific story about grief. We really do. So even when you step, even when you, you like just stepping out of it, even as someone who I've never done things the way you're supposed to do them. It's not like I'm like this conservative person who like does everything the right way. Like I've always done everything wrong, but even still, I was still like, petrified yeah. to do this one thing, which was just to like, which is a very natural thing to do. 
Yeah. Also, we don't know because no one teaches us and people don't have frank and honest conversations about grief. They do it behind closed doors. And I do want you to talk about your column because I, again, I was like, this is going to be amazing. Um, I don't know if you know, Melissa Gould who wrote Widowish, but she also in her story talks about a short period of time dating someone who she was dating really early and had some of the experience that you're describing, but also some of the other experience of people being like, really, why are you, you know, why are oh, you yeah, well, that? I had that too. I mean, and of course, yeah. because, because we have sort of one iteration maybe, and maybe we're also, and I, and I think your book does this a lot is talking about sort of like the roles of women in grieving and the roles of women in our sexuality and our exploration, but you may already know this. And I learned this probably 10 years ago when I worked with a woman whose husband died by suicide, all she wanted to do was have sex. They had had a relatively normal sex life. She had no idea he was suicidal, but all she wanted to do was have sex. And she was really concerned that this was some sort of pathology. And oh, we after he died. Would you, after he died. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's totally real. It's, and so I, listen, I can't, I don't know enough to be able to tell you what this is. Let's, let's go talk to some people. And we got, we sat in an office with a neuroscientist and what he said was your body is craving oxytocin, which happens through sex and orgasms. Mm-hmm. Oxytocin is actually a protectant against complicated grief. It will protect your body in lots of different ways against the grief getting in and wrecking your life. And I will, I mean, I will never forget watching this woman sob being told that her bodily instincts, her, this is what I talk to people about all the time is like, listen, what do you want to do? Does your body want to move? Does it want to sleep? Does it want to dance? Does it want to sing? Why the hell wouldn't sex, which is a bodily function, be part of that story? But watching her take in this really graceful, you know, he was talking to her about her brain and her body and what it needed and saying, not only is this not a problem and nothing to be ashamed of, it may be incredibly instinctively wise. I mean, it was just amazing. Oh my gosh. I hundred percent. I don't know how many studies have been done on this, but it feels like there aren't enough. Yeah. Because when I went looking for the information, like, because literally the moment like, and I wrote about this in my book, the moment Hal died, I literally would have fucked every nurse yeah. in that hospital, yeah. every doctor, I yeah. would have fucked the coroner, anyone, everyone. Yeah. It was, it, it literally was like a visceral, yeah. um, it was like, like prime, you know, like I was literally having this reaction that felt, it felt yeah. like that felt completely physical and the, it, it totally makes sense. You're with someone who just lost their life force. What's the closest yeah. thing you can come to feeling your life force? Yeah. It's like sex, orgasm, whatever. Like that's, that's the opposite of what's just happened. So when you watch somebody lose their life for it, I think there's a real sort of, you know, for me, it felt like the way you'd crave a drug or a cigarette or something like something's happening. I need to something like, it felt like a, it came from a place that what didn't feel healthy that first night. Cause it felt like desperate need to like fill myself. Right. Obviously I didn't have sex with anyone that night. I, I did wait longer than a night. Right. But, Doesn't have to be obvious. You could have. 
<laughs> like I was like, hold on a second. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I've thought about that night a lot. That's the feeling that I remember most. That's like what I think about when I think about the night of him dying is the fact that I had this full on physical reaction where I was like, fuck, like what is, and to be like, what is wrong with me? Like I have to go home and tell my kids that their dad is dead. And I'm literally like turned on like what? Um, but it's so alive. I mean, the kind yes, of that totally the kind of trauma treatment, the work that I do is, I think I said to you a minute ago, it's very body centered. So it's, what is the energy inside your body? Pass no judgment. Just what does that energy want to do? I think part of, part of that is just accepting that like, we don't control our emotions. <laughs> That's not what we do. We just regulate our bodies. We right. figure out how to be in our body. Right. And to me, you know, I've been with dead bodies multiple times in my life. One time I threw up another time I hysterically cried. Like there's a mother load of energy that is inside my body that is there on account of the death of someone else. And the idea that maybe your body would be responding to death with like the most extreme and high energy version of life. To me, that feels so wise and instinctive. And in the trauma therapy that I do, it's not described like this. This is the way I describe it, but it's almost as though we have a bus load full of possible bus drivers. Yep. And there's the bus driver that normally drives the bus. And I think you and I both have a caretaker that normally drives the bus and normally drives the bus to a good place where people pat you on the back and say, good job. And even when you get there and you've done some caretaking, but you still have enough and enough of your own life force to like, do your life too. Yep. What happens in these extreme life moments is that we need or get hijacked by other bus drivers. We need other bus drivers because the ones that have been driving were not set up for this particular moment. So you do things like you and I did, which is we do the caretaking until the bus crashes, until guess what? We need someone else. Someone else has to get us out of this hole. And the, and the amazing thing I think is that even if we are not aware of who all the bus drivers are, bus drivers step up. What was interesting for me in my grief, like I would tell you I'm friendly, I'm affable, I'm flexible, I have extra. And it's about two and a half years since my mom died and I am not very friendly <laughs> anymore. I do not have extra. I do not go out of my way for people. I actually have a pretty readily available, angry, frustrated bus driver. And some of what that angry, frustrated bus driver is talking about is shit that the other bus drivers did and gave away for free. Totally. And they're mad about it. And so it's really impacting relationships and friendships. I think this is still in my memoir, but I wrote about this moment where a woman came over who lives in my neighborhood with her girls who always used to drop her girls at my house when she needed to run an errand. So my mom is dead. I'm home. I have PTSD. She knows my mom died. She gave me flowers. She was very nice about it. What she doesn't know is that I'm getting progressively sicker and that really I can barely take care of myself, never mind anyone else. So she's dropped the kids. They walk in like they always do. And they're like, Hey, we're my mom just went, went to run an errand. And I came upstairs in my room. I didn't break plates like you do in your book, but I came close and I was like, who the fuck does she think she is? Doesn't she know? Why should I have to take care of her fucking kids? Like I can barely take care of myself. And my husband came upstairs And of course I started yelling at him, like, what the fuck is going, why do people do this? And he was like, because this is who you used to be. 
Right. This is who they know you to be. And your shirt is still buttoned right? and you're still speaking English. So that yeah, is who they think you are. And it's such an interesting time because what I would tell you is I'm still rotating my bus drivers and I'm still getting my feet underneath me. Yeah, for sure. There's a self-consciousness to it, but it's necessary, right? Really? Totally. Yeah. What, no. was, what was your experience? Cause you write about it a little bit with your, um, in the book about like you had kids who were also engaging with you. And I know that honesty and truth is really critical and important. So how did you engage this idea of telling the truth about your relationship with their dad and telling the truth about dating and telling the truth, given the fact that, you know, they're not 25, they're kids. Yeah. Um, when he found out he was found out he was dying. And this is something that we both were really kind of on the same page with was, was the importance of, of being honest with our kids sort of about everything. And we kind of always were, yeah. um, so it wasn't like new, like I've been talking to my kids about death and sex and everything in between since literally since they were beginning, I have had, there's been no mystery around anything. Um, so there was not, never going to be mystery around this and the nature of his illness. He was basically went from being totally normal, fine to like basically being incapacitated within days. Yeah. And I wrote, I wrote about sort of the way he treated us when he was dying, but not like in super detail, but like, he was really awful. Like, I know this is like a common thing, especially when you have the kind of cancer he had, like it was, it was in his liver too. So when you have like liver cancer is really awful because it's basically like you have hallucinate and you start thinking things that like, he thought the kids were monsters at one point. Paranoid and yeah. um, was sending text messages to our son that were awful. Like, you know, it was, it was really bad. So we like from the day one, when he came home from the hospital, and this is in my book too, we told the kids, he told the kids I'm dying. I'm going to die. This is happening. Yeah. As he was dying, I was really explicit with them telling them what was going on. I mean, I was constantly having to explain why he was saying the things he was saying and doing the things that he was doing. Um, And, you know, it was very, obviously very triggering because he, when he was alive, he was angry and he said things to them, you know, that weren't great sometimes and to me. And so it ended up being sort of like, it sort of opened all of these, like they they were, we were all having to face the fact that we had lived with a complicated, abusive person, right? So in the end, he was, he went back and forth between like being light filled and lovely and being horrible yeah sort of how he was and he was alive so that this this was our experience at the end so I think it really sort of caused all of us to like have conversations about the kind of person he was and what we loved about him what we didn't love about him and what we maybe were happy now he's not he you know he went back and forth between home and the hospital and it was like woof like he's not in the house anymore and then there was all this guilt because we want don't want our dying dad to be at home but there shouldn't be guilt because he was, it was horrible. Like it was it horrible for anyone. and they yeah. have every right to have all the feelings that they're feeling. And my whole thing as usual is validating everyone's feelings at all times. You can be mad at him. You can love him. You can hate him. You can want him to come home. You can want him to leave. You can want him to die. You can want him to live. All these feelings are completely normal and natural. And guess what? I feel them too. Like I feel them too. Um, And I think like the more we talked about it and the more we sort of validated our feelings, the more I felt like I could talk to them about what makes me 
complicated. Dad's complicated. Dad, you know, dad says, said all the wrong things. And, you know, I think I, they sort of assume that I was like the perfect one or the nice one or the good one, the good one, I should say, but I'm not the good one either. Right. We're all complicated and we're all human. And, and I felt the more and more we started to talk about the comp, how complicated our relationships were with how the more I felt like I needed to reveal the stuff about me that maybe they didn't know. Cause I'm no angel either. And let me explain to you why. So I think, you know, pretty soon after he died, I remember I was watching big little lies and the son who's my oldest. And at the time he was 13 and I just told him we were sitting there, there's an affair. Someone has an affair in it. I literally just looked over at him and I was like, I, I had affairs the entire time I was married to your dad. I just feel like I, you should know this about me. Like it was right after he died. And he, and I was like, and you can feel however, however you want to feel about that. If you have questions, if you want to talk about it, he knew about them. If you want to, you know, let's talk about it. Um, and I think he was like, I think he was like, couldn't believe that I was telling him that. Well, what strikes me when you're talking is that kids are not the only people that need safe space, right? And that as a trauma therapist who went into an inpatient facility, part of what I had to decide was like, how much of the story do I share with my clients? I barely said anything to my clients about me previously because that was how I had been trained. But the reality is in order to be honest about who I was in the room, I had to share that particular piece of like, listen, I walked the talk, right? Like I did what I would ask you to do if you got ill the way that I got. I certainly felt this and you write about it in the book that not only are you inviting your children to see you as human, allowing them to watch you develop and explore, like not just through grief, but also as a single person, as a woman, as a, I don't know, most, most kids get their parents kind of fully cooked and fully formed in a way that seems like they know everything and that they're grownups. And when I was sick, part of what I really worried about, and it was my own childhood stuff, was that my kids were going to see me as someone who was too fragile to take care of them. And I actually did a podcast with them about a year after my mom died and after I had come back from treatment. And I asked them all the questions, like, what was it like for you? And what was, and it was totally eye opening because when I asked them, what was the hardest part? The hardest part for them was this huge fight that I got into with my sister that I did barely even remember. That was not what I was tracking or, you know, what was the most significant part? What was, you know, what didn't they tell me? Well, what they didn't tell me is that actually they enjoyed themselves at the funeral because they were with their cousins. Right. And they didn't want to tell me that. Cause that's, that by the way, me. that's like such a kid thing with, yeah. them, right. It's like, they, they're like laughing, having fun, running around playing tech. There's Why a wouldn't picture, they? and I wrote about this, but there's a picture how it was unresponsive maybe the day, one day or two days before he died. And he's lying in the, in the hospital bed, looking dead. And there's a stuffed animal. Wait, it's either perched on his head or his shoulder. And it's like, they were literally playing like on his, his dying body. And they were like stuffed animals on him. And like, if they could have sharpied a mustache on his face, they probably would have like, that's the stuff. And that's beautiful, by the way, like like that is Oh, like that's the stuff I want to talk about. That's the stuff I want to share. And people don't know what to do with that. Cause you're not supposed to like, 
we're so buttoned up when it comes to death. And it's like, this is the reality. And, and I, I kept thinking like, thinking of like, well, when I die, I hope kids draw mustaches on me and like, fuck with my body. And like, yeah. do put on, do like whatever they want to do. Like, why wouldn't you, right? Like, why wouldn't you want to celebrate the fact that they're just, they're kids. They're, they're still kids. kids. Part of what they're doing is being kids in loss, right? Like when you talk yeah. to child psychologists about grief and loss, no matter how traumatic it is, what they will tell you is that kids are instinctively wired as we all are to come to some sort of energy that moves us through grief. And yeah. with kids, it's often, it's just often play. And so, you know, hearing that there's a stuffed animal and a mustache and all that stuff is just, it's the antidote. It's the reminder that life really is for the living and that it doesn't have to only be, I mean, you can't get away from the sorrow and the sadness. It's just that the sorrow and the sadness is in the left hand and the life and the living is in the right hand. And you do both of them at the same time. Also, we're hardwired to deal with this stuff. Like we're hardwired to be around death. And I think the nature of our society is because we hide it. We keep it away. We're not supposed to talk about it. We put our elderly in homes. We don't, we don't look at death. We don't spend time with death. So we don't, we don't understand how good we are at living with it. Right. We're living. And I think when you're around it and when you're around it as a family and you realize how high functioning everyone is, in the room when someone is dying, I look at death so differently now. And I like, I would love to, uh, at some point, like work as a death doula, work in the death world, do what I can around death. Like, yeah, I, I'm really, I think it's incredibly rich and powerful to be around the dying, even when they're calling you names and throwing things at you. Like, I really, um, I think there's a lot of beauty in it. I think people, like, I totally understand, like, you know, they're the people that volunteer the hospitals to come around to play music. Um, yeah. I totally, like, I, I just, there's. That makes sense to you now. I yeah. to- totally, get. I'm like, I, if I could play an instrument, I would be in the room doing what I could. Like what, what here, here's me in the spoons. Like I'll yeah. do I'll play my four chords on the guitar. But I spent a lot of time with my dad and my dad was a difficult character in my life. I loved him a lot, but we were not similar. And I think he would, I think he would have said the same, like, you know, Megan and I don't get along very well, but we love each other. And when he got his diagnosis, which is, you know, you got a very serious, you know, terminal diagnosis. We had one too, small cell cancer. And I had a really concrete understanding because I have some background of like what this is going to mean. And I said to my husband early, like, I just want to show up. I want to be with him. And in the making of that decision, I dropped a lot of the historical pain of what we had been, you know, how I disappointed him and how he disappointed me. And so we had this very easy time together, even though he was irritable as he had always been his whole life, even though he would be an asshole as he had been his whole life. Now, after he died, I had to come back through the pain of what it was like to be his daughter and to have no more minutes. But the year of his death was very like grace filled is sort of the best way that I can describe it. When I think about, you know, again, how we talk to people about grief and loss. Really the only narrative of the story is if your person is dying of cancer, it's really, really sad. 
but, but the truth is when my dad was dying of cancer, it was kind of beautiful between us, like maybe even more beautiful than ever. And now I've learned to kind of put some words around that where people can nod their heads and say, it makes sense. But at first, when I was talking about it, I would say things like, well, I kind of liked it. I liked being with my dad when he was dying and people would look at me like, what are you talking about? But I do think, you know, like with memoir, which are, it's such a gift. Anytime anyone is willing to tell you the truth of their actual emotional experience, because, we read to understand our own selves. And so when you can hear someone say something that you're like, shit, I just, I thought that was only me. It's such an unbelievable gift, but also I think particularly women who are telling the story as they experienced rather than how the world would script them to be, we're recreating the world, right? Like we're recreating the whole definition of what grief looks like and who women are and how they are. And I just feel like, you know, I tore through so many of the pages of your book, not because I was like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. But because there were so many lines that I underlined where I was like, damn, if that isn't the God's honest truth, could you tolerate me reading out loud a little oh second? I'd be honored. I, oh, you know, well, I, I have like my book back to me before I have a thousand, um, I have a thousand dog ears, but this is my favorite. I mean, this one, I was like, God damn, there are times where when I'm, when I'm writing and writing is kind of new to me, but when I'm writing where I'm like, I should quit now, I'm going to quit because she wrote the words and they don't, there aren't any better ones. Okay. So here we go. So right now, I mean, this is a proof, so maybe this will change, but it's on page 124. So for all the folks, when they have their books, grief is nonlinear. It's sneaky and sharp, like a serial killer in a movie where there's no warning no suspenseful music, no screeching of violins. And one night when you think you're fine, everything is fine. Oh, look at me living my life, thriving even. It's like, boom, bang. And then suddenly you're on the floor with no memory of how you got there. Grief put a roofie in your drink. And now the room is spinning. Grief is supposed to be a Mack truck, but really it's a Prius with its lights off. God damn it, Rebecca. God damn that line. No way to know it's coming until you are under its wheels. In those first weeks after Hal's death, I learned to welcome the tread. I knew the undoing ways led to more heightened awareness, like being possessed of my own knowing. An exorcism I must have forgotten I signed up for. Like, girl, you know you're in Trader Joe's trying to decide what pasta to buy, but hear me out. You need this. There is something godlike about these moments of release. The irrefutable power of a seizure-like breakdown that ends in a holy silence, the falling apart, a catalyst for rearrangement. We find new ways to open ourselves to change. This is our privilege. Evolution can only happen when bodies adjust to high tides and weather patterns and an earth that will not conform. No one can be the rock all the time. Sometimes you have to let yourself break all the way down become the sand. I mean, oh, Jesus. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I think just thank you. Thank you. Well, it's funny because I just had a moment. I recently just had a moment where I like had a total, oh, I think it was this half, this bow. What happened with bow with the bathtub? That was like a real, yeah. That's a real trauma right there. 
real reopening. Um, and then the next day, my mother-in-law, Hal's mom came here and she stayed with me for six days. And it was the first time she'd been here in three years. And it's the first wow. time she's ever stayed with me ever when Hal was wow. So the, the amount of feelings, a lot of feelings within those, that bulk of time, it's PTSD, right? It's like you, it is. You're like, and, and, and it does feel like that. Like not to quote myself, like it does feel like it just, it hits you. It's like, just when I was talking and like, I burst into tears. Like I always, it's like always the times where I think I'm going to break down that I don't. And the times that I don't, that I do, I did a, you know, I did my own audio book and I thought for sure, I'm going to read this and have some sort of catharsis release where I start to cry. And I didn't. And I, every time I left the studio, I get in my car and I would be like, is there something wrong with me that I didn't emote? Like, I would think that I would have emoted. Um, and it's always like the times where I'm not expecting it. Like I'll be like Trader Joe's. I mean, the amount of times I've broken down the grocery store, man, you're like out there exposed. I know. And it's like a song will come on or I'll smell something it comes up a lot in grief therapy. The grocery store comes up a lot with people in grief. Oh, you're just normal. It's a non-threatening place. And all of a sudden you see like, you know, the spicy hot pickles that they like and you're done. You're cooked. You're crying. Yeah. It's so- it's, I, I think it has something to do with the, the living of a normal life. And then you're like emotionally mugged by the, the longing and the sadness. It's like I, it saw the door open and comes to get you. And I think that's, that's true. And it's like anything, it's like, as soon as you let go, it's like when you're just, just like when you're living your life, that's when you're, it's almost like you're, you're super vulnerable to feelings because you're just like, nothing will, nothing will get me here. Like nothing's going to get me over here in the pro style of Trader Joe's. You're not expecting it. And I think that like what, what was really for me, something that I did not like something that was unexpected for me about grief was that it never comes when you're expecting it. Like I was able to stand in front of a funeral and not cry reading a eulogy. And yet I couldn't ask if, if someone, if they were out of like olive oil that bursting yeah. in tears, yeah. like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And I think like, I think it's, that's really beautiful. Like, I think it's really beautiful as someone who like wants to be in control. I, I kind of love, I love this for me that like, I don't have control. Like anytime I'm reminded that I don't have control and then I'm just here and I just have to just be open to all of the feelings for better, or for worse, that they're going to come find me, whether death's going to come find me for better or worse, you know, criticism is going to, as soon as you sort of open yourself up to the, to, to the idea that like, everything is just coming at you at all times and you have no control over what it is. It's sort of a relief. I think when you go through a sudden traumatic loss, there is a little bit of like, well, fuck it. All the worry and the way that you're trying to protect yourself and your kids against the world and all the tragedy and all the chaos and all the, you're like, yeah, well that happened though. And we lived and we survived. So I think there is this aspect of like, I don't know, like the word that I think about it is sort of curiosity and respect where, you know, I know all the things I've been trained in all the things I've been doing this for 20 years. And when I'm like, Whoa, I'll, I'd not see that one coming. It's almost like, um, I admire it. It's almost like, Oh, well, yeah, okay. Like respect. Yeah. That's yeah. how I feel. I'm like, I respect yeah. your hustle, whatever it yeah. is energy. Yeah. Like I, 
I feel that that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. And I, and I think I live, you know, I was a pretty anxious kid. I think I live with a lot less anxiety having had the calamity of losing my parents, you know, in short shrift. Yeah. I have less anxiety because I, because the tornadoes came and went and it's not, they came and went and it's not like I stood steady. I went down and I got back up. Like I went down heavy. And even in these past few weeks with gun violence and women's health rights and all of those things, like, I feel like what I know about myself is that I'm going to go down, that my expectation isn't that I'm not going to go down, that I actually have a deep respect and understanding that, you know, one of the things about being a heavy feeler is that the feelings are going to take my knees out from under me, but I don't stay all the way down. I will end up getting back up. And it's, it, it is a lesson that I don't know that I could have learned any other way. I am happy to have the, the knowing. I wish I didn't have to learn the lesson, but I don't know what my life would have been like if I didn't learn it. And part of, I want to let you go because I'm, I, I'm totally respectful of your time, but I do want to say this because I don't think that we've said it yet. I was thinking about when you were saying it before you were talking about being a caretaker. And I was reminded of this thing that Glennon Doyle says, which is, you know, ask a woman who she is and she'll tell you who she loves, which is, you know, sort of how do we define ourselves and not the story of Hal and dying and, and you caring for your children and for him to me feels like the smaller part of the story It is that that the, that the story of you becoming the person that has been held sort of in freeze all that time is the story that to me feels like the one that everybody wants, which is the, the traumatic growth, the transformation after loss, the belief that life continues. And I think you write about it in just a lot of beauty. I mean, a lot of, a lot of grace, a lot of description of looking at it as a learning process instead of um, something that you're supposed to know how to do or that you're supposed to do a certain way. It really does feel like this gorgeous discovery of yourself. I feel like the only books I'm really interested in right now are wildly feminist books. Yeah. You know, you talk about the hero's journey in there and the arc of the hero's journey, and it's got this deep irony to it because to me, you are demonstrating to us really what it's about, which is being willing to let yourself develop rather than deciding what you think you need to know about who you are. Oh, that was beautiful. I love what you said. Thank you. I, um, yeah, I mean, I think my experience is probably super common. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, a lot of people have messaged me and they're like, I'm really worried that people are going to be, you know, mad at you or upset. And, um, like people are projecting all this fear onto the fact that I'm telling a story that is pretty universal. Yeah. I think that is so telling. Wow. This is a really, my experience is really universal. Like it is not isolated to me. This is not some sort of modern tale on anything. Like this is a very normal reaction to a situation that a lot of people will experience or have experienced. But people are like, but no, but pe-. and and my hope is that we can normalize getting up from the dinner table and saying, I'm going to go get fucked. Do you know what I mean? Want us all and whatever that is, I'm getting up to the, at the dinner table and I'm going to go do X or go there, yeah. or go, go, to, go fly to Spain for the weekend. Like, just because 
it's true. We take care of it. We take care of all of it. And women, oh my God, the amount of caretaking every woman, and especially in these last few years during COVID, the amount of caretaking we're doing. I mean, we are working overtime with no overtime and we deserve to feel seen and heard and good. And we deserve to have great sex and to have relationships with people who love us for who we are. This is like this, the bar, this is like bare minimum, bare minimum. And yet talking about it and, and, and writing about it and exploring that is still stigmatized. Like, fuck you. You're telling us that we have no control over our body. Like the government's trying to mandate fucking motherhood. Fuck you. Like the (laughs) antidote to that is, is, and this is like where I'm at, like where all this stuff is happening. It's like, how do I combat this? bullshit. I can't, I can, I can go to all the marches. We can vote. Right. What we really need to be doing is we need to be talking honestly about our experiences and we need to be supporting each other for doing that because this is, this is normal. Actually. (laughs) I also think, cause I'm 48 that, you know, I'm sort of out of fucks in general anyway, but I do think that there is something freeing about profound loss and where yours is a declaration to some degree early on about your sexuality and your, and your desire and your need and your deserving to go and live life. What I felt most profoundly was don't ask me for anything. I don't owe you. I don't owe you a thing. I don't owe you friendship. I don't owe you a smile. I don't owe you care. I don't owe you thought. And, you know, again, I've probably been a caretaker since I was seven. And I'm now I'm trying to find the middle ground of that. Like, actually, I am kind of partly a caretaker and I need to have better boundaries. But I feel like there is a definition out there that is about femininity that we're sort of trying to push against. And I feel like your book does this incredible job. And part of which you know, again, you're in there telling the truth. You're talking to your kids about dating women as well. And that to me, I sort of feel like, listen, if we're going to move the world where to where it is, not where it needs to be, but to where, if we're just going to tell the truth, we need to be able to talk to children instantly. And from a very early age about what the truth around sex and sexuality and gender is, because otherwise it's them that's going to suffer, not us, right? Like we're already in our gender, our sex and our sexuality. Also, this is what's so interesting about the kids just to like bring it around. Cause I know we brought up the kids for a minute. Children today, kids these days are the least judgmental people. Oh my God. Who exist. So someone I remember saying, like when I was having like, you know, I was in an open relationship and was dating. I wrote about this briefly. Like I was dating somebody a man and like also dating women. And my kids knew that I was dating a man, also dating women. So I was like an open relationship, like, and they were like unfazed. People were like, your kids know. And I was like, you, yeah, they, yeah, they know cares. They don't like they're They're carrying the garbage. They have none of the garbage. There's nothing that I've ever told them that they were shocked about or uncomfortable with. They ask questions age appropriately. I had age appropriate conversations with them all. Cause they're, you know, they're all, yeah, of course, but there was never a moment where they weren't. In fact, my daughter, I just launched this column. It's really funny. She like superimposed my face on all the sex in the city characters. So it's just me and me and me and me. And it says like sex in the single mom. And she made it for me and sent it to me. Cause I was like, I'm launching this column. And she's like, yeah. And that was her response was like making me this thing. Like they don't, they're unfazed. 
they're unfazed and also they're taking their cues from us, right? So if you can demonstrate that this is a way that we live and we live without shame, then they're not gonna yeah. infer any shame because why would they? Doesn't even make any sense. But again, you're writing it, you're writing it not for children, you're writing it for adults. And I just sort of feel like, again, it's unapologetic because it doesn't need to be, but it is the truth. And everywhere that we're right, whether you're writing the truth about my sexuality was on board minutes after my husband died, or yeah. actually I was exploring my sexuality. I was dating both people. I was enjoying dating, you know, in front of my kids. And that is part of being a widow. Again, we need to hear that because people, they assume the sort of story that they've heard forever and we are changing the norm. The norm also, has got to change. We're, we're not, our kids are supposed to see us as people. It's actually really dangerous for them not to. I grew up, okay. I grew up in with perfect parents that I found out later were not so perfect. Yeah, and course. when I found out that, you know, my parents weren't so perfect, my mom wasn't so perfect. I finally felt like I could like talk to her. Like, I felt like I could have a relationship with her because you like this idea that your parents, you're not supposed to know about their lives. Or like, I'd say to my kids, like there's a difference between privacy and secrecy, right? Like privacy, respect my privacy. I'm going to respect yours. I don't look at their phones. I don't look in their journals. Like, like we have a very, I feel very strongly about boundaries, but secrecy we don't, we don't keep secrets from each other. Well, secrets have shame inside them, don't they? I mean, right. that's the nature of it. it. You know, you don't need to have, you don't need to have a secret unless there's, you know, something dubious that's exactly. in it. Um, exactly. This is a non sequitur. Are you and your family watching Heartstopper? Have you seen it? Oh, I mean, we've seen it. Well, I've watched only. I'm on fourth, my fourth viewing. Okay. I was going to say, you're like, so two of my kids, Bo, I think has seen it four times. Fable, yeah. I think has seen it four times. The rest of us have only seen it once. But it is so good. And it's, I was, I do a carpool. I mean, I do a carpool every morning, every afternoon in my carpool this morning, we're all talking about it because it was like, now everyone has seen it. Like before I was like, me and Fable were like, you guys got to see it. And now everyone has seen it and it's all everyone's talking about. And it is so good. And did you see sex education? Because sex education. Yeah, I love, but I showed the Heartstopper to my 10 year old. Oh yeah. yeah. Because it is everything that is the best about dating as a teen, right? Like it's the fingers touching, it's the sweatshirt that they let you borrow. It's all the innocence of it. And it just happens to have trans and same sex plot lines to them, but they are secondary to the actual, what it's like to have severe crushes that don't go unrequited. I mean, I'll watch it again. I mean, I just love it's it. The bat. It's so I love bad. it. And I do, Sex so Education bad. is a brilliant TV show because actually, it, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed this, the teenagers are the ones doing the sex education. Oh yeah. They are the ones that are telling you all the important stuff. I mean, I regularly am like, wow, these kids live in a different world because this stuff is accessible to them that I did not meet someone who did not present as straight until I was a senior in high school. That was the very first time that I was like, huh, I wonder about this. I've never heard about it before. I don't think there, I don't think anyone out of my kids have friends who present as straight. Like it's so like completely. Yeah. Everyone's fluid now. Everyone's pronouns are, you know, like everyone's fluid. But it's so interesting that when we're talking about grief and loss, really that's what we're, it it ends up encompassing all of the truths that ever were right. Like the pretend version of the world where these things 
don't exist, never existed, or are a problem. Yeah. It just doesn't hold up when we're in these spaces where our emotions are overwhelming and big and real. I just sort of feel, and I say this all the time, I think particularly my dad's death, I always say it was like one of the most real times of my life. I have very little tolerance for the other. Let's put a lampshade on this. Let's obscure this. And like, no, this is what it, this, this is what this is. And I, and like, that's actually, that part breaks my heart. Like people, people put so much energy into denying the truth that they miss out on everything that's beautiful about it. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, God, there's so much beauty in the mess. There's so much beauty in trying and failing and fucking up and dying and almost die. like, so there's where, where there doesn't have to be fear. Like when you get past it and when you kind of like come to the clearing where you're like, Oh, it's all here. And it's all yeah. beautiful and messy and disgusting. And like, but this is like the whole point is for us to figure out how to live here. Like all the shit that's happening in the world. Like this is our world. This has always been our world. Do you think that this is new? We've always been terrible and violent. It's always been here. So we just need to like, it's like part of me just becomes sort of like a nihilistic, but in like a really optimistic way. Like I I totally get like positively nihilistic where it's like, (laughs) how do we stand and our nihilism with love and compassion for each other. And um, you're going to invent a new word. Tell before we go, I know. Um, tell folks about the new column. Cause you did put that oh. up on your Instagram today and it looks yeah. amazing and I can't wait for it to start, but just tell folks so that they know what it is. Tell them about your, your newest, literally your newest development. Yeah. In your- um, I've been sort of writing quite a bit, um, about, sex and dating in various places online. Um, and now I'll be doing it on a column on Romper. Romper's a parenting site. And it's, I think it's called Sex and a Single Parent. Sex and a Single yep. Parent. Yep. Um, and I basically did sort of a call out a few months ago on my stories to ask people if they had questions. And I've written the first six. Um, I'll be rolling them out over the next three months and then I'll continue to write it if it works out. Um, it's all about dating as a single mom. So the, it's a very complicated landscape. A lot of people have, you know, they haven't dated for 20 years and they're new to it. Right. So I'm, I'm centering, you know, the experience of, of single mothers because it's, it's very different dating with kids than not dating with kids. And it's 100%. very different dating in your forties than it is dating in your twenties. And it's very different when you're dating, when you're queer versus when you're straight, or if you're only dating, you know, it's like, there's so many different, um, exactly right. So I am, I'm appealing to all of it. And I, you know, I've gotten really incredible questions and I'm excited to roll these out. Um, a lot of these topics I haven't even seen, like we're not talking about them. So again, yeah. I think yeah. any, anything we're not supposed to talk about is what I want to talk about. <laughs> we're going to put that really on the back of the list. Yeah. I really, really hope that when you're on book tour, that it comes somewhere in my direction in DC and that we will get to meet in person. And no, I can same. It, was really nice it was so generous of you to just say yes to this and for sending me the book, which I really, really, my best friend is actually coming down here on Friday. And I was like, I have a book I'm going to put in your hands. Oh. So good. I know the book is going to do all kinds of incredible things. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Oh, it's so you. nice to meet you finally. Right, and congratulations yeah. on the book. It's just Thank gorgeous. You. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so Bye-bye. Much. Bye.